Hi, welcome to episode 40 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. For this week's episode, my co-host Stephen Gallo and I will be talking about the latest developments in the yen and euro. We will offer a bit of loose speculation ahead of this week's G7 and G20 meetings that are along the sidelines of the IMF World Bank meetings. The title for this week's episode is, Does the FX Market Need an Intervention? Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Okay, Greg, so we're going to get the ball rolling. This is episode 40. It's a nice round number of a milestone for us. Uh, It's the 19th of April, 2022, as we record. Uh, We often start these podcasts by looking at past returns. Uh, So... For the relevant currencies, looking at the dashboard, the yen has fallen by an enormous 11% versus the dollar year to date. Uh, It's experienced a similar move against the onshore Chinese renminbi, the CNY, uh, just a tad smaller uh, than the move against the USD. Um, Against the euro, year to date, the yen has fallen by 6%. Um, in previous podcasts, we were discussing uh, that the, the euro's fundamentals were as negative as the yen's, if not more negative. But the move in the yen has been so severe uh, that it's threatening to drag the Asian complex with it, despite jawboning from various Japanese officials. And it's taken the attention away from the fundamentals in many other currencies. So given the scale of the move, the speed of the move, my first question to you, Greg, is do we have a real classic problem here in the FX market? Well, Stephen, with the way things have gone over the past two weeks, and particularly if the trends of the past two weeks continue, then I do think we have a problem. It's not a liquidity or market functioning problem because the FX market has held up really well in that regard. Look, to me, the biggest issue is the Japanese officials have lost the ability to steer their markets. On the rates front, we have the 10-year JGB yield right back up to where it tests the BOJ's yield curve control upper boundary at uh, uh, 25 basis points. And then on the FX front, every form of verbal intervention known to mankind has been tried over the past week, including getting a perhaps reluctant BOJ head Kuroda to say that yen depreciation is excessive and unwanted. But that intervention has been basically ignored by the FX market. In my mind, when a central bank has lost its ability to steer markets, that's a potential problem. It would be an acute problem if it started to propagate out to other countries. And and I like the way you phrased it, that perhaps we're on the verge of that with other currencies and markets in Asia. Look, 
it's hard to know if and when there will be, you know, quote unquote, contagion. But it's also painful to find out too late that contagion has occurred and the issue is rapidly spreading. Okay, so losing the ability to steer the market. That sounds like we could be heading towards some type of misalignment in the yen. So with that in mind, what else can the BOJ really do at this point in time, Greg, to regain control over the yen? That's a really good question, Stephen. And the next problem is, I don't really have an answer to it. And it would seem that Japanese officials don't either. The BOJ does have a policy meeting on April 28. And one thing they could do is surprise the market uh, at that meeting. And I guess th- this part wouldn't, wouldn't be a huge surprise, but they could shift their uh, 10-year JGB yield curve control mechanism. So one easy thing, they could widen their band so that instead of the band being plus or minus 25 basis points around a center of 0.00%, they could widen it to something like 40 or 50 basis points. And, uh, and in fact, they, they could even uh, move the center of the band up, you know, maybe 10 basis points to plus 0.10% uh, or something like that. But, but I guess I don't think that they um, would or could raise their overnight rate because they haven't done enough to prep the market sufficiently and, and it just might cause further uh, instability. I hate to say it, but if we keep moving at three big figures a week, uh, like we have the last several weeks, I mean, we could be at 133 in dollar yen by the time they get to that meeting. So I guess the other thing the Japanese officials can do uh, to maybe call markets in the interim is to phone a friend, so to speak. All right. So phone a friend. Uh, this to me is where things get really interesting, Greg. Now, I assume you're talking about coordinated intervention to strengthen the yen from it, from Japan's G7 partners. But on that note, I've got a few brief questions. Firstly, as this move has been sort of induced by the BOJ rather than an external shock or some type of uh, unforeseen natural event, uh, do you think that means the G7 will approach this matter differently? A second question, uh, what does the G7 have to gain by coordinating a response of this nature if it, if, if it happens? And then thirdly, uh, what will the G7 lose if it simply stands aside and does nothing? <laughs> okay, Stephen, I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to sneak a bunch of questions into one, um, but I'll run with it. So uh, firstly, I will partially take Japan's side and contest just a little bit what you said about this uh, big move lower in the yen being uh, induced by the BOJ. What I would say is that the BOJ did not cause the supply chain problems that pushed U.S. CPI above 8% and thereby forced the Fed to move extremely aggressively in 2022. Moreover, the BOJ didn't cause the massive repricing in uh, 10-year government bond yields, nor did it cause oil to move from well, you know, we'll call it $70 a barrel in December to 110 in April. And, and that has massive implications for Japan's balance of payments and, and thereby puts downward pressure on the yen. However, what the BOJ admittedly did do, and it was a huge mistake in, in my opinion, is that uh, as Kuroda waved the green flag for more yen weakness in his last policy meeting. In, in his press conference, he, he basically said that yen weakness was net-net good for Japan. Of course, that, that was with dollar yen at, at 118. 
when it hit 125, he changed his tune, but it doesn't entirely eradicate the first mistake. So on the topic of joint intervention, any parties to that, and and I think I would just add, you know, I, mechanically, the, the way it has to work, I, the G20 is just too big of a body to participate. It, it would be done through the G7 and, and really, you know, mostly ECB, BOJ, Fed, uh, Bank of England, those parties. At any rate, if, if we were to get to intervention, I, I think all of the intervention participants would likely insist that Corona has to communicate in a manner that upholds the intervention's aims from, from there on. And then the BOJ would probably have to do something with its policy levers at, at that April 28th meeting. In terms of what the G7 would gain from intervening, um, that's got to be what they would ask themselves. And my answer is to go back uh, to the pandemic analogy, um, so to speak. So at this stage, uh, I would argue there isn't much visible contagion yet, but we don't, we don't entirely know um, what's happening underneath the surface. And uh, hopefully what is gained through intervention is, is you know, it's an inoculation that um, increases the immunity of the global system. So your last question, what does the G7 or G20 lose if they do nothing? And, um, you know, again, they, they lose the opportunity to potentially prevent an outbreak. But I'll admit it's hard to know either the probability or the severity of any outbreak that might occur. So it's hard to answer that question in any way that's concrete. And that's probably why they don't do anything. When the situation is so unknowable, the easiest action is no action. So I guess with that in mind, I'd probably only give 20 to 30% probability-ish to a joint intervention, and, and I'll widen my time frame just a little bit um, and say by, by the end of this month. But of course, if it were to happen, I think we'd see dollar yen back below 125 in an instant and, and potentially back all, all the way down to 120. Greg, that's great. Thanks for that analysis and also for quantifying the probability of coordinated intervention uh, at this stage. So now it's my turn to put you on the hot seat, Stephen. I get to ask you three questions about the euro. My first question is about the ECB. From the CFTC data, I know that IMM leveraged funds moved to a net long euro position in the survey. And this is a survey taken last week, uh, so two days before the ECB meeting and associated communications. Those euro longs have got to be a bit underwater now. So here's my question. Why do you think the ECB chose to underwhelm relative to the market's expectations of hawkishness? Okay, so for your first question, Greg, I'm not entirely sure it was a choice as much as it was a reflection of the difficult spot the ECB's in. You know, let's be fair, most central banks are arguably in a difficult spot in the current environment, between a rock and a hard place in, in, in many ways. But they at least have the luxury of being able to lay out some type of a roadmap for normalization. And we've seen that. The ECB, on the other hand, has a labyrinth to deal with because of the complexities of the euro area. And we don't need to go into these in, in, in this podcast. They're well known. So... <laughs> 
if I can simplify things, the ECB can either follow other central banks like the Fed at a similar speed, or if it can't do that for operational reasons, it takes the gamble that moving slowly on normalization, even though it looks like the wrong decision now, it won't matter as much in six to nine months if we start to see real evidence of inflation falling sharply uh, or weaker demand really really starting to pull inflation rates lower. But, you know, to answer your question, I don't know if it if it was a choice as much as it was a reflection of policy inertia and how large the split between the doves and the hawks within the governing council is at this stage. Okay, uh, my second Euro-related question. If Marine Le Pen wins the French election this upcoming Sunday, April 24th, where does the euro go in response? You know, the simplest answer, Greg, based on FX investor positioning, uh, which you briefly mentioned earlier, uh, the trend in the polls since the first round, which I believe on balance have favored Emmanuel Macron winning in the runoff, I would argue that on a Le Pen win, we get a quick move to 104, uh, spot reference 108, so four big figures, purely on the shock of the result. Um, but then I think we'd get a bounce, uh, not a full retracement in my view, but but some type of a bounce and consolidation. Do we get a move to parity in euro dollar on a Le Pen win alone? Uh, probably not initially in, in my view. What are the factors here uh, for that call? Certainly plans for further fiscal integration in the EU that would be delayed uh, with a Le Pen presidency. Uh, because the bloc would basically have to try and find its footing again uh, with this new type of presidency in France. The slowdown or, or the, the, the slower pace of fiscal integration would probably make the ECB's job of normalization even more difficult. Um, but at the same time, Le Pen's uh, sort of ditched the EU, ditched the euro membership for France uh, platform from 2017. That's been toned down significantly. She significantly toned that that down to try to win over centrist voters. Uh, and also keep in mind, we have the elections to the French legislature due to take place uh, in June, um, basically over the summer, near the summer. Uh, and it's not if 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 the result there is not a clear win for her party, that could keep many of her ambitions in check. So a lot of moving parts here. Uh, it's not very straightforward if we get a surprise Le Pen win in the second round. Also, uh, just keep in mind that before the second round runoff this coming weekend, we get a televised debate between the two candidates on, on the 21st. Uh, that could be a really key moment in this election. It certainly was in 2017 in favor of Macron. Okay, Stephen, uh, we're winding down here. My, my last Euro-related question. If the sanctions imposed on Russia are dialed up to more broadly include Russian energy, uh, and so basically meaning if Europe stops buying Russian oil and natural gas, where does Euro-dollar go in response? Greg, another good question in these highly uncertain uh, geopolitical times. Uh, but again, on this one, there are so many moving parts here. Investor positioning in euro dollar doesn't suggest the market is anywhere near fully priced for this risk uh, materializing that you asked about. Uh, even if the general weakness in the euro we've observed year to date is fundamentally justified by the balance of real flows, 
My point is that FX investors haven't ridden the tide of those flows by adding significantly to euro shorts, at least not in euro dollar. So I would give you 103 as a target in euro dollar if, if Germany and the wider EU fully ban uh, Russian energy imports. And I'm talking the whole thing. Uh, coal, lignite, crude oil, natural gas. My understanding is that less than half uh, of Germany's energy generation uh, comes from those fossil fuels. So it's not a cataclysmic event, but it's also a very sizable economic shock. On a move to 103, we, we may be getting to the point in the euro, which is close to where we said things currently stand in the yen now. Uh, but ultimately, I think the euro's high liquidity profile, reserve status, that would eventually provide a cushion uh, to euro weakness. Uh, and still to this day, I wouldn't rule out uh, some type of a response from the ECB to stabilize the euro. Impact on, on German growth this year, clearly a negative, uh, but a lot depends on a number of unknown factors. Uh, what type of fiscal support will the government respond with? How efficiently will renewables be able to make up for the loss? Uh, how will the government ration the supply of energy? Uh, you know, given that we're moving towards the summer months, I suspect heavy industry will be prioritized over other sectors, but we just don't know. Um, as for the ECB, <laughs> makes a extremely difficult situation even tougher uh, because the ECB would be faced with potentially an acute stagflationary uh, environment, at least for a time. Greg, I think this is where we should wrap up episode 40. Uh, thanks for your questions. Very interesting to get your take on the yen. Hope the same is true for my take on the euro. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Join us again next time, please. All the best. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team, this show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest 
interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified, independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.